right, everybody. Good morning. Hey, my name is Will. I am the senior pastor here. Some of you might have forgotten me. I've been gone for the past month, but it is good to be back with you guys. Yeah, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be back. Um, I had a wonderful break, a sabbatical, a time of rest and renewal, and I've heard that we had a great time here over the last month. But I will tell you guys, as I went each Sunday and worshiped at different churches, to come back here I, my heart is filled, and to see you and get to interact with you, I'm just so glad to be back. We're beginning a new series this morning, and so if you're here in the room, maybe for the first time, if you're a guest watching online, you picked a perfect time to jump in with us as we're going to look at the essentials or the fundamentals of our faith, and that's going to be the next seven weeks. But as we begin this series, as we do every Sunday, we believe it's the good and right thing for us to do to read from the story to read from this Word of God that, that, that is our story. And so I'm going to read to us this morning from Romans chapter 10. We're going to read verses 8 through 10. And this is one of the earliest Christians, a guy named Paul, talking to the church then, but also talking to the church now about what it means to follow Jesus. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along, or better yet, just follow along on the screen as I read to us now from Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Here's what Paul has to say. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because the way to covenant membership is by believing with the heart. And the way to salvation is by professing with the mouth. So you guys, one of my dearest friends back in my last church, a guy named Ed, and Ed married his high school sweetheart, Randy, in 1957. And they got married in 1957, and in that time period, as they went through their engagement period and approached their marriage, they realized that there was a significant problem in their relationship. There was a significant problem that was causing some anxiety between the family members. And there began to be some anxiety in the community about Ed's relationship with his girlfriend, Randy. And here's what it was in 1950-something. Ed was a Baptist and Randy was a Methodist. Do you guys remember? Yo, I know this might sound crazy. For some of you, it doesn't. But there was a time where that was an incredibly big deal to marry someone from a different denominational tradition. It's still both Christian, but a different denomination. That was a big deal. That was just something that Ed told me you just didn't do back in those days. And so Ed and Randy, as they got married... They had a decision that they had to make. What church are we going to be a part of? What church are we going to be a part of? And so they really enjoyed the Baptist church. They said the sermons were too long and kind of boring, uh, but they loved the community that was there. And so they decided they were going to be Baptist. And they went and they went to meet with the preacher, with the pastor of the church. And they had a conversation with him about joining, about for Randy, because Ed was already a member. Randy was going to join the church and become a part of the Baptist way. And as he tells me this story, he always just kind of does it with a chuckle and a smile on his face. As he said, you know, my wife, she was a pretty feisty lady. And we sit down with the pastor and she's talking about her experience as a Methodist. And she was a devout United Methodist. But as a United Methodist, one of the things that happened to Randy is that she was baptized as an infant. She was baptized with sprinkling, water just being sprinkled over her instead of the Baptist way of being dunked by immersion when you're old enough to make a profession of faith. 
And, and Ed tells the story, and this is when he begins to really laugh, because the pastor looks at Randy after she shares her story, and he says to her, well, when you get baptized our way, because you know you're going to have to be baptized our way in order to be a member of this church. So when you get baptized our way, you will realize that it's the right way. And Randy looked at her husband, and she looked at the pastor, and she said, well, I guess you're right. We're going to be Methodists now. And they got up, and they left, and for 50-some-odd years after the fact, Ed and Randy were devout and beautiful Christians in the United Methodist tradition. And, and I think this story kind of encapsulates something that we all have experienced at one level or another, right? Churches that major on the minors, churches that make an incredibly big deal out of things that at the end of the day, I actually don't think are all that important. You know, I was going back and I was looking and doing some research while I was on my sabbatical, and this was fascinating to me, guys. My, my mind was actually a little blown by it. In the United States, just in the United States, do you know how many churches there are? Now, the number's getting smaller every single year. But in the United States, in 2022, there are over 350,000 churches in the United States. There are thousands of different denominations. There are Baptists and Episcopalians and Methodists and Catholics and non-denominationals, which are essentially Baptists but don't want to claim that name for themselves, right? And there are thousands of different denominations. There are all these different kind of theological orientations and these 350,000 churches. They disagree. On, on some level of uh, uh, virtually everything with one other church. They disagree on something with every single church. But of those 350,000 churches in America, I can guarantee you they all hold one thing in common, and it goes back to what that pastor said to my friend Randy. They all hold one thing in common, and here's what it is. They all believe that their way is the right way. They all believe that their way is the right way. And, I, and I've got news for you. In the course of a church's existence, and, and that is including ours, okay, so I'm going to be totally confessional, our way isn't always the right way. There are certain things that we have gotten wrong, and all churches have gotten wrong. But of these 350,000, I'm guaranteeing you almost all of them are convinced that their way is the right way. Churches do an incredible job, friends, of majoring on the minors, of majoring on the minors. And so what I want us to do over the next seven weeks, because friends, we are entering into a unique time in Christian history, at least in the United States of America. Because for the longest time, we lived in a Christian culture. You could count on at least everyone having some broad idea of what Christianity is. But we're moving into a new and a different time frame. We are moving into an era where to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, friends, this is going to be an outlier. It's going to be different. And so there was a time where denominational identity would have been central. It would have been key. But I can tell you as a pastor, and I have pastored in non-denominational environments. I've pastored in United Methodist churches. And now I get to be the pastor of maybe the right kind of church according to that pastor, the Baptist church. And, and guys, I can tell you there was a time where I was asked in all of these different settings, what does this denomination believe? What does that denomination believe? But I want to tell you something, and this is absolutely true, that those days are over. And good riddance to bad rubbish. 
Because what I want to ask is a more fundamental question. What I want to ask is the question that we are going to be answering in the years and the decades to come. And here's the question that I want us to consider. Not what does it mean to be this denomination or that denomination. But backing up 2,000 years, I want to ask a more fundamental question. And here's what it is. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to believe in the way of Jesus? And the way I want us to get at answering this question, my friends, is I want us to go all the way back to the beginning. I want us to go back to the beginning of the church itself. Because what you will find is that 2,000 years ago, there, there wasn't even a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. The stories of Jesus were still orally circulating. There was no systematic theology those books hadn't been written to fill shelves that are big as libraries. There were not denominations. There was simply the church, the way of Jesus in the world. And what I want us to do as we get ready to live in a post-Christian culture, if we want to do that and do it well, we need to be prepared to ask that fundamental question. What does it mean to be a Christian? And there are two primary reasons that I want to answer that question, and we're going to spend seven weeks on it. And here's one of the first reasons I think it's essential that we answer that question, because we can see, if we're paying attention, we can see what is wrong with certain ideas. Because remember, churches, ours sometimes included, we love to major on the minors. I'll never forget, I was in the seventh grade, and I didn't become a Christian until much later in life, as, as many of you no, but growing up in the mountains of Northeast Georgia, you went to church pretty regularly. And, and so I went to youth group and I listened to a youth minister give a, a great sermon in my seventh grade mind. And then afterwards he comes to me and he's talking about my friends and what church am I a part of? And I said, well, I really don't go to church. I really don't go to church. I said, but my two best friends, uh, they're, they're Catholic. And I will never forget as long as I live that he looked at me and he said, you know, they're not Christian. Really? They're not? And I don't know. He said, actually, yeah, they're not Christian. And if they died, this was the sort of church it was. If they died tonight, they are going to go to hell. And so I got out of that youth group meeting and we had pagers back then. So I paged them and I said, 911. And they called me up. I was like, yo, dog, do you know you're not a Christian? And they were like, I'm not. And I said, no. And if you die tonight, you're going to go to hell. And my friends were like, have you been to that church again, Will? <laughs> yeah. And, and listen to me, friends. There are distinct. There are distinct and very different ideas at, at a deep level between our Catholic brothers and sisters and us. But listen to me and hear me loud and clear. To make a claim, going back over 2,000 years of Christian history, that this group of people is not a Christian because we disagree on certain ideas. We are majoring on the minors, and that is wrong. I have encountered people, friends, who have gone to churches, and women in particular, who have been in abusive relationships, and they go and they confide in a pastor, and what they are told as tears are streaming down their face is that wives are called to submit to their husbands, and it would be doing the gospel a disservice if they were to leave this abusive relationship. And it is claimed to be on the authority of the Bible, no less. Friends, that is wrong. 
And if we can get back to the essentials of what is truly at the heart of the Jesus movement, it is easier for us to identify when Scripture is being manipulated, when traditions are being twisted. And so one of the reasons I think this is an essential series for us is because we can answer that question, what is wrong with certain ideas? But I think even more powerfully than that, to ask the question, what do we believe? What does it mean to be a Christian? Is that not only can we see what is wrong with certain ideas, but we can also see what is right. We can also see what is right. Because one of the things that you are going to discover as we go throughout these next seven weeks, whether you're here or watching online, is that to be a follower of Jesus is in fact one of the most radical and countercultural things that you could possibly imagine. To be a follower of Jesus, to believe that he is the crucified and resurrected Lord of all creation, sets us in a unique and different path than any other faith of the world, than any other paradigm of the world. And what we will find is what is true and right and beautiful over the course of these next seven weeks by going back to the origins of the original church before there were denominational fights before there were all of these theological controversies and wars that are fought in the name of Jesus, we can learn what is good and what is true, what was so compelling about the way of Jesus at the beginning of the movement. So we can learn what is wrong, but we can also learn what is right. And so that's what I want us to do. That's the chart that we are heading on. And today we're going to begin with a more basic question, right? What's in a name? What does it mean? At, the, at like the, the core of it all, what does it mean to be a Christian. And so what I have said is we're going to look at the essentials or, as you saw in the really punny and funny title of my series, the fundamental list. And that's what we're going to do. But as we begin our journey together, I want you to understand something. That there is a mantra that is going to be key. It's going to be essential for us. And this is true for Christians But it is also going to be just good advice. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you want to know how to succeed in the world, this is like my Dale Carnegie moment. If you want to know how to have friends and influence people, this is a pretty good word of advice for you. And this is going to be key for us as we go throughout this series, as we look at what is essential to the Christian faith. And this is a quote from an early church father, and here's what he has to say. That in essentials, we are seeking unity. In non-essentials, We are seeking liberty. So if I could put it another way, don't major on the minors. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But this is key. In all things, charity. Now, the guy that's writing this, he was writing in Latin, and the Latin word charitas actually has a broader meaning. It's not like handouts of stuff like we think of charity or giving like to the, to the Salvation Army at Christmas time. But charity is a way of generosity. It is a way of goodness. It is a way of kindness in the world. So as we embark on this journey in the essentials, we need to be united as the church of Jesus Christ. In non-essentials, we can disagree on things. Are you sprinkled? Or are you immersed? Those are things that are not essential. In essentials, we need unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, one of the defining characteristics of a follower of Jesus is that we are filled with charity. One of my mentors, as I was beginning my life in ministry, I'll never forget, he told me one time, he said, Will, you can be right in your doctrine and your theology, but you can also be a jerk. 
And if that is true, according to Jesus, you can be right in your theology, but if you were a jerk, according to Jesus, ultimately, you're wrong. Ultimately, you're wrong, and you're not following him well in the world. And there are too many churches and too many pastors who say things like, I'm going to tell you the truth in love, because guess what? That's in the Bible. And then they proceed to just beat the crap out of you all morning. And that has nothing to do with the way of Jesus. And so for us, over the next seven weeks, in the essentials, we will find unity. In the non-essentials, we give liberty. But in all things... We represent goodwill and generosity, which the Lord knows we need it now in our world more than ever before. And so what are the essentials? What is the fundamentalist? And if we really want to get to the heart of it, we don't actually start with Jesus, but we go all the way back to the beginning, to the people of Israel. And you can go and read their story in the book of Genesis, but really Exodus is where it kicks off. And they were slaves in Egypt, and God set them free through this like, miraculous course of events. And for the first time in over 400 years, the people of Israel, they're free And they're trying to navigate what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean? What is essential for us to believe? And what we have is this incredible moment where God gives to Moses 613 teachings. 613, the tradition says, it's called the Torah. 613 things that you need to do, that you need to do in order to be a good follower of God in the Old Testament. But instead of thinking about things we have to do, there's also another way. What do we need to believe? What do we need to think? What needs to be at the center of our heart? And if you want to know the first essential all the way back at the beginning, what we find is in the book of Deuteronomy, which is essentially kind of rehashing some of Exodus. And if you're not familiar with biblical language, sorry, I'm getting a little bit in the weeds right now. But in the book of Deuteronomy, The people of Israel, hey, who are we? What are we doing? What are we supposed to believe in this world? And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we read this incredible statement. Not what do you do, but what do you believe? What does it mean to be an Israelite? And according to God, here's what he says. At the center of our belief structure, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, in their day and age, to be one, they lived in a polytheistic culture where you worship the sun and the moon and the stars. You worship fertility gods. You worship just about, literally, y'all, everything. And we can look back some thousands of years later and go, look how primitive they are. But I promise you, we worship just as many gods as they do. And we'll come back to that next week. So at the center of the belief system of ancient Jews was this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. God is one. And if you want to know how we are to think and believe and feel about God, the passage goes on to say this, that the Lord is one and love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There is one God who is the creator of all things. And the call of Israel before you do anything is to understand that this God is the only one who is worth your devotion. This God is the only one who is worth giving your heart and your mind to. You were slaves in Egypt and he set you free. So what does he deserve? He deserves everything. So hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
And what is fascinating to me, friends, is that Jews, even to this day, they don't have systematic theologies, but this is the baseline for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And Jews in the temple in the time of Jesus, they would go to the temple to worship and to celebrate. And the first thing they would say when they arrived is this incredible passage, which is known as the Shema. So what does it mean to believe in the God of Israel? That's what it is. Now, fascinatingly, what happens is that Jesus actually affirms that as well. In one of the stories in the gospel, some, someone comes to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What, what's the greatest commandment? What's the way to life? What are we called to believe? And Jesus actually quotes the Shema. Some of us might not know that. He says, you know what it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus was living in an environment in a world where the Pharisees and the Jews of his time had begun to major on the minors and make a big deal out of things that were not central to the way of God. And so Jesus comes along and he reminds them of what is central. He reminds them of what is essential. If you want to know how to follow God, love the Lord your God. You know the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, fascinatingly, Jesus goes on and somebody says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes, you know that person you hate? You're called to love them too. And this this fascinating thing that Jesus does. So he affirms the Shema and he affirms what is central to the belief system of Israel. But what is fascinating to us and the reason we are here in this room today is that Jesus begins as he goes around Palestine and into Jerusalem, he begins to do certain things. And the people catch note of it and they realize, man, he's not just a normal person. And he begins to say certain things. Like, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he begins to make claims about who he is, that he is God's own son, and he's come into the world to actually fulfill the promises of this God. And a remarkable shift begins to happen, that he is crucified and everybody thinks the story is over, but then he's resurrected from the dead on the third day, and Christians who were almost all first and foremost Jews, they begin to go, whoa, 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 whoa. That God is one, but God is doing something new and incredible and fantastic through Jesus. And by looking at him and by following his way, we can begin to see what God actually intends for the world. By looking at Jesus, we can begin to see, get, get ready for this, what God is actually like. If you want to know who God is, what the early church said is look at Jesus. And they begin to try and figure out if Jesus is the fulfillment of God's story, then what does it mean for us to be Christian? What does it mean for us to think Christianly? What does it mean for us to follow the way of Jesus with our heart and soul and mind and strength? And that's when things get really interesting for us who are here in this room. Because one of the earliest followers of Jesus, I already said it, a guy named Paul, there was no systematic theology before Paul, and he actually didn't write a whole ton of stuff. He wrote 13 books, and you can read them in just a few hundred pages. But like the most important thing he wrote was a letter to the church at Rome. And in it, he tries to lay out some structures of Christian belief. But before he gets to any of that, he actually gets really practical. And, and writing to the church at Rome, 
which he had never been to, but he knew was growing rapidly. He knew they needed to get the essentials in order first. He writes this letter. And in, I think, what is the most beautiful passage that he wrote in all things, he defines what do Christians believe? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Let's get away from the non-essentials and get to the heart of the matter. And according to Paul, for those of us who are here in the room, if you want to get at the center of our belief structure, here's what you need to know. In Romans chapter 10, what we read earlier is this. Because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And some of us are like, hold on, what? That's it? I don't have to go through a big, long class? No. I don't have to read the Heidelberg Catechism? No, no. I don't have to subscribe to the Baptist faith and message. If you don't know what that is, cool, good for you. Because no, you don't. It's really pretty simple. What's essential and central to our faith? Paul says it best. If you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, welcome to the family. You are now part of our team and part of our tribe. And I know that sounds simple. And what I want to do just like for the next five or six minutes is I want us to actually look in a little more detail and depth about what those two phrases mean. Because if we can wrap our minds around those two phrases, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Friends, we are in a position to actually live out the way of Jesus in this world. And so the first thing that Paul says is to profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm going to have to go real quick, y'all. This is my first Sunday back in like four weeks, so I might get a 50-minute sermon, but just bear with me, okay? Because here's what's happening. Paul says, profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, in the first century cultural context, that is a loaded phrase, That, in fact, is political dynamite because in ancient Rome, which, by the way, Rome is the global military superpower that has their foot on the throat of the Israelites, they would have had a slogan. They would have had a saying. And here's what it is. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the true king. And so the first thing that Paul says, if you want to be a Christian, you have to profess with your mouth that there is a Lord and his name isn't Caesar. His name is Jesus. That there is a king we pledge our allegiance to and it has nothing to do with Rome. There is one we will follow all the way throughout our lives and it isn't Tiberius or Nero, or Augustus. The first thing that we learn is that Jesus is Lord. But that isn't the only implication of that phrase, Jesus is Lord, because in Greek, if you take the word Lord and put it back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Scriptures, that word that is used for Lord in Greek is the exact same word for God in the Old Testament. So not only is Paul saying the central thing that you need to understand about our faith is professing that Caesar isn't Lord and Jesus is, but the other thing is this, that Jesus is God. And if you want to know the truth of who God is, what you are called to do is to look at Jesus. So the first thing is to profess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord. If I could maybe frame it another way, I think here's what Paul might say to us today, that Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our worship. Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our devotion. Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our allegiance. And let's make this real practical for just a moment. Are you professing the lordship of Jesus? This is about you. Are you professing the lordship of Jesus when you send that text message to your coworker of the opposite sex, even though it's past business hours and you didn't need to include that heart or smiley face emoji? Are you professing? Seriously. Are you professing that Jesus is Lord in the way you live your day-to-day life? Are you professing that Jesus is Lord when you post that nasty stuff on social media about people of a different political party? Y'all, I read a stat the other day that said a majority of Americans would rather their children marry someone of a different religion than of a different political party. I'm not going to mince words on that. If that's where you find your heart today, you're not pledging your allegiance to Jesus. You're far from the way of Christ in this world. Because there is a Lord and his name is Jesus and he is the only one who is worth our worship. And the second thing that Paul goes on to say, right, you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but then he gets on to the second piece, which I think I might like even better, where he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And I want to be real quick on this one, but belief in our world, it tends to only think about head knowledge. So I go and I learn something and then I believe it. But please understand, the way of Jesus, yes, it is about the head, but it is also about something deeper. And belief in the ancient context doesn't just change your mind, but it does something even more important. It changes your heart. And in order to believe something as audacious as God raising Jesus from the dead, it involves both your head and your heart. And it is a fundamental shift, not only in the way we think, but in the way that we live. Belief involves your head and your heart. But what are we believing? And this, I think, is the center of it all. Where Paul says, profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And I know far too many Christians and far too many churches that on a Sunday morning spend the entirety of their time talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. And that is central and that is important. But please understand, if if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, then our faith is in vain and we are to be the most pitied of all people. That's a quote from the Bible, not from me. And so Paul says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And at the center of our faith, central to who we are, is this, that Christians are a people who believe in resurrection. Christians are a people who believe in resurrection. And that has implications for how we see the world. I know far too many people who claim to follow Jesus, but they're the most negative human beings on earth. And they talk all about how everything is gross and disgusting and the world's going to hell in a handbasket and it's all so bad. But if Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, what Paul goes on to say 
is that the restoration of all things is at hand. Not the end, but the restoration. And through that resurrection, things are being restored and renewed and redeemed to the way that God always intended it to be. And to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead fundamentally means that we are a people of optimism in the world. We are a people who see what is possible in the good and sacred world that God created because Jesus is alive and all bets are off. Do you want to follow Jesus? Ultimately, that's the question. And if we want to strip away all the nonsense and get back to the essentials, it begins with this. Profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And friends, you are welcome to life. And so ultimately, the question I want to leave you with is this. What do you say about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus? Can you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And if you can do that today, friends, welcome to the club. We're going to have a great seven weeks together, but what I'd love to do now is say a prayer for us, and then we'll end our time together by celebrating the one who defeated death. So if you would, join me, and let's pray together. God, we are grateful. I'm grateful to be back here in this space with your people that I love so much. And God, today we are grateful that Jesus is Lord that he is the one that we give our lives to. We are grateful that he shows us the very nature of God. And Lord, we are grateful today that he defeated death. And as Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love that we found in him. God, for some of us who are here today, for some of my friends who are in the room and watching online, their experience of Christianity has been just a nightmare, one episode after another of people who are majoring on the minors. And God, some of us, maybe all of us, bring hurt and baggage into this place. And on this day, renew our minds. Help us to think clearly, not only with our heads, but with our hearts, to see what is central to following you. And may we trust in your good way, because you are Lord. God, be with us as we continue to worship This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.